You are listening to The Bill Podcast with me, Natalie Rolls, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com, shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and introducing cityfiction.co.uk. We are on a roll, or should that be rolls? <laughs> because we've just had a record-breaking month on the Bill podcast, with over 10,000 of you tuning in throughout June. So thank you, you lovely lot, for your amazing support. Also, huge thanks to our brand new sponsor, City Fiction, a publishing house dedicated to supporting and promoting new and established innovative writers. Tony Drury is the founder of City Fiction and joins George Fairbrother and Michael Seeley as an executive producer and co-sponsor of The Bill Podcast. Next week, you can enjoy a bonus edition of The Bill Podcast as I sat down with Tony to interview him about how he made the jump from a 40-year career in city finance to becoming a crime novelist. Tony has penned five books in the DCI Sarah Rudd series of detective thrillers and hot off the press, City Fiction has just published Tony's autobiography, Square Mile Tales, a helter-skelter ride of a memoir set against the backdrop of the City of London, where he had dealings with plenty of well-known and some notorious figures, all of which you'll hear about in next week's podcast. Find out more on cityfiction.co.uk. And now it's time for the third and final part of my chat with the beautiful Beth Cordingly. We hear more about Beth's time as PC Kerry Young. We also remember award nights, bad publicity, dream jobs and lots, lots more. So pop the kettle on and enjoy the finale with the lovely Beth. Eh. You could go back to those years on the bill. Yeah. What would be your ultimate night out that you remember? The like the awards and stuff. You know, we used to all just love getting dressed up and going out, never having enough time to find the right frock. Yeah. And that was all like, whoa. Can you remember any of those? Yeah, I think the best ones were the National Telly Awards, weren't they? Because they were the massive. I mean, like, you know, you had... The Soap Awards and stuff, that was all really cool. But the National Telly Awards, was that at the Albert Hall? They were, I mean, amazing. And you had everyone there. Yeah. We always felt a bit like, oh, it's us and all the soap. <laughs> kind of being a bit naughty and then all the serious, serious programs over there. Yeah, it always felt amazing to be part of those. And they had that. I remember getting out of a cab and you'd be all dressed up and 
the longest red carpet ever. And you get that adrenaline where your knees are literally going because you're partly because you're freezing and partly because there's just so many people shouting at you, taking pictures and amazing, really. It was incredible. It really felt like good, didn't it, to be part of that theme and en masse. And yeah, yeah, it was wonderful nights. And I always remember Roberta Taylor on those nights. She would be hilarious because she's done it. She's done it those nights. She was just like the best person to be around. Yeah. You had a good relationship with her, didn't you? Yeah. Green, you had some good stuff with her. Yeah. she was, And I remember a director that I worked with called Philip Prowse talking about how a friend of his had gone on EastEnders and done her own thing with her character. She had really made it her own. And, and he was talking about Roberta. And she did the same thing when she came to the bill, I think. She always, she would always, she was unpredictable in her, in what she would play. You know, so it was really exciting to play against because you never knew, you know, you could read a line in a script, but the way she'd say it, you know, it might look like it was going to be really angry and she'd be really light with it. So then you were always on your toes in that kind of fizz. There's that fizz, isn't there, when you're working with someone that good? Yeah. yeah. I didn't do many scenes with her, but just as you said that, she would always find completely opposite way. Yeah, she was really hard. good at being scary, being the, the scary inspector, but with a kind of you had that feeling that she was always three steps ahead of you and that she really, so Kerry, you did such and such. And you'd be thinking, yeah, <laughs> really clever. <laughs> which gives her that, gave her that authority, which just, yeah, takes the character into another level of, so to watch, I think it's exciting as an audience because you just really believe in that character because those people, they have such gravitas. Yeah, love her, love her. Great woman. She did the live episode, didn't she? She was... Yeah, I didn't do that. Do you do that? I didn't do that. I remember being thrilled that I wasn't doing it at the time because I thought the whole thing couldn't be more terrifying. And then when I've done live theatre, you know, when with the RSC, they filmed it and it's gone out live across the world. And then thought, oh, I wish I'd done the one on the bill. (laughs) Yeah, the live moments, I remember, because my other half, this is quite funny, he was brought in... And he had scenes with Todd Carty in the live app. And he was told to wait, wait in the green room. And him and Todd started watching the cricket. The cricket was on at the same time. And they missed their cue. On the live? On the live. There was some sort of final bit where everyone had to be there. And both him and Todd missed it because they were watching the cricket on something. That is I know. Taxation. That's a that's just like tuning out. <laughs> what live episode? <laughs> live? This is live cricket. <laughs> so funny. They're the sort of things that would be picked up on if it was uh if we were in social media around that time, you imagine the things that would be put out there. We were really lucky. We were really lucky. We avoided that. I was gonna say that, yeah. We were on that before Twitter and everything, I think. I know. There was some really hot, you know, people would employ on the side. They would have their little sort of PR machines. They were trying to do a little sort of extra. And I remember I had a little moment with someone and they would try, they sort of met me some in some weird state spot on how they knew I was there. I don't know how they knew I was. It was at someone's wedding. Right. But this guy sort of sidled up to me and he said, you know, 
what do you like doing? Do you like cooking? Do you like, what's your thing? Do you like, and I was thinking, who are you? He sort of gave me his card and said, be in touch if you know if you need some. So it was that horrible machine behind the scenes that some people really jumped on. And I know you had a bit of rubbish with Daniel because he loved a bit of that, didn't he? And also yeah. he was away from home. He was he was not in Australia. For him, it was a very different thing. For us, we live here. And that feeding into that machine was, uh, it was a line that you crossed or you didn't. And I remember doing a, I really got bitten by Nina Mishkoff. She came in to do some interviews. I don't know who she was working for at the time. But I remember I did rename her Nina Mishkow. Did I say that? But yeah. <laughs> so were there any really awkward, nasty moments for you where you just were like, hey, I remember that thing where you'd come in and you'd see, it's difficult, isn't it? You'd see stuff on the notice board and it would be a big headline with a quote. And I remember it saying something and there was something like, I think I'm all that or something which I wouldn't ever have said. And it's that way you had to talk yourself down from going, because you'd see it and you'd think, oh my God. And you'd feel like the whole world had seen it and that everyone would be thinking, you know, because you're seeing it in print. And you're thinking, oh God, everyone's going to think that I'm really arrogant. And then you have to sort of think, you know, a few people have turned the page in this magazine and gone and thought what they thought and whatever. But at the time, you get that panic in your stomach because it's in print and it's saying that you've said that. And you're yeah. kind of going, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And it looks like a quote and it's actually a headline that's been put on. And then I remember having an interview with someone, a female journalist, and it was in the canteen actually at the bill it was always better when the PR person was with you because they could slightly sort of say and I'd said at that point I don't want to talk about anything personal for whatever reason and um she was getting the uh, it's quite it was interesting to see the other side because I saw because the interviewer was getting more and more anxious she got one of those purple rashes that went up her neck as I was kind of saying well I don't really want to talk about that sorry I don't want to talk about that I don't want to talk about that I don't want to talk about that she'd obviously got the brief from her editor or whatever, you have to find out whatever fact about this person's personal life. life and personal lies. The lies. We need to know about your lies. <laughs> Where is your personal lies? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, she was getting more and more anxious. And that's when it was quite interesting because watching that happen and watching that person kind of melt in front of me I then realized rather than just seeing it as the media I was like oh look there's a person here behind this who is having a nervous breakdown about the fact that she's got to go back to her editor without anything and I guess that's why sometimes things get made up because there isn't enough so they stick a headline on that tries to make it more interesting because actually the interview you've been given is really boring <laughs> I don't know just like you say, it's like they're, they're there for that mission to try and find out something. They're trying to sell crappy papers. Mm. I remember Nina, she was very lovely. She wanted to do photos. She wanted to do great chat about character. But then it was like she became, she was really sneaky because she said, oh, I really just need to or oh, can I just come and sit in your dressing room for a few minutes? And, and you know, that was a great interview. Da, 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 da. So 
I was completely as far as, you know, I was off. I was off the interview. Yeah. Never trust a journalist. And I remember she was sat in the dressing room with Suze and I. I think Suze was in and then she left. And then she was sort of turned all girly. And now I look at it, of course, I was a bit naive. Well, we all are. We were. Uh, it was a different time. And now I would hate to be in a show where, I mean, hopefully the PR companies, whoever was engaged, would be much more protective. Mm. And now that everything is so online, it's not so paper orientated. It's 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 a different, it's a different ball game. It was Jeff. I think it was Jeff that was splurged about recently. You know, and how nasty they are. You know, comparing a person from 30 years ago and how he's lost the... It's just so cruel. All of that is just... That that side of any of the business can just bugger all. I remember seeing... Um, walking into a newsagent and seeing a headline on one of those magazines written by women being horrible about women. I don't know whether it was... I don't know, Heat or whatever. One of those magazines. It was like, good news, girls. Danny McPherson is single again. Accordingly, and Daniel have broken up and I'm there going, Ugh. that's like, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> you can help him. What a win. I mean, yeah. That's, that's the thing, I guess, if you could close Like, you could, what are you doing? <laughs> If that thing is neat, I think it is possible to keep your private life private, but as soon as you've caught that kind of stuff, or unless you're like mega famous when people are just really, really interested in you moving or whatever you do. I admire people that can just keep the line where it is. A question that most people would like to know about you, Beth. Um, uniform. What happened to your uniform? I think I was about to do my epaulets. Well, maybe I didn't, or maybe I... Stole them, but then maybe I didn't steal them because maybe that's illegal. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's illegal. Maybe that's illegal. They weren't the sexiest of uniforms, were they? Those big trousers. Some would think otherwise. And massive boots. If you could choose one job today oh my God. Yeah. that wasn't what you do, oh, oh my. Oh, no, hang on. Let's do both ways on this. Okay. okay. If you could choose one job now, today, what would it be? One of the jobs that I did. No. If you could do a job, like right now, I'm thinking Tamsin Althway is in Death in Paradise in the middle of a Caribbean island somewhere. Is she? Yeah, she's like the new whatever. You know, she's like, what a great job. She's just, oh. I suppose. Her kids are a bit older now, so she's yeah. able to relocate. Maybe they've come with her. I don't know. But great wow. job. That would be, I think, right now I'd like that. Death in paradise. A year's contract, please. What would your job today, if you had to go off to rehearsal now, where would you be going and what for? I really want to do some comedy, actually. I'd like to do a comedy series. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because... All those dream jobs, like, you know, big films and Netflix series and all those kind of things. I still really want to do those things, obviously. Yeah. But because of my eight-year-old, 
I've spent quite a lot of time away from home with theatre when I've been away with theatre and stuff, more recently with theatre. And they've been like an amount of time in Stratford-Bornaven or an amount of time in London or whatever. But And so it's always a bit of a double-edged sword because you think, because I've been up for some things and I thought, oh, this would be amazing, but how on earth would I do this? I'm a single mom and this comes in Manchester or Romania. Yeah. So then you don't get them and you go, oh, phew. <laughs> it's really odd. Uh, I'd love to do some more telly at the moment because I'd be doing loads of theatre. I don't know. I suppose that's the sort of slightly magical thing is you never really know what's around the corner. I think you managed your early years with Eliza. I think you managed that so well because you were working lots and she was little and you had a wonderful network. You had your parents, obviously daddy and Eliza. It's easier when they're little, actually, than when yeah, they're farm Yeah, because I just took her up to Stratford with me when I was doing the RSC and then she's bombed around with me everywhere. Yeah. No, you balanced it really well. And she's more, you know, she's settled in Brighton. I don't, I mean, she'd love it. You know, I was up for something. She went, if you get that job, can I be homeschooled? And I was I was like, because she's one of the only kids that liked being homeschooled. Maria <laughs> was the same. Yeah. All my attention, attention, trying to do maths, writing each other's notes. She'd be on the Zoom. We'd be writing each other notes. Don't understand this bit. Who's that? Love, love, love. So it was quite, <laughs> but we are a bit. You know, have you ever watched Gilmore, Gilmore Girls? I've got my mind here. Bits of it, yeah. We watched Gilmore Girls in lockdown and Modern Family, and now we're on Superstore. Oh, Superstore's great. I love Superstore. But, uh, yeah, we very much kind of bum around as a little too, so. Yeah, so it's weird. It's, I sometimes think, oh, I wish I was doing such and such, and then I think, well, if you would do it, it's a sacrifice, you know. The people that are doing those jobs, the people who are parents that are doing that job, those big jobs are also sacrificing. Real. So. And it goes so fast. My boy's 15, just 15, and it's, you think they need you less and less. It's. It, I think it's opposite. It's a very weird balance. Mm. You have to be around and you're a single mom. It's quite a balancing act. It's different from our parents' time. You know, they really stuck at things, our parents' generation. You know what? You know, no one really divorced, no one, you know, they just stuck at it, didn't they? And they got through it and they were parenting and it was different. Where we're at, darling, it's totally different. Can you remember how you, when you got the bill parked, do you remember that moment? Yes. Where were you? I was at Clapham High Street. With my lovely friend Steph, who was my housemate in Clapham North. I remember it really clearly, opposite the big Sainsbury's on Clapham High Street. I think we were on, or maybe we were about to go into it. And I got the phone call and I was with her and I remember literally going, I got it! Oh, my cat's just looked at me. And jumping up and down, jumping up and down. Because you go, oh, my life's about to change. It was one of those moments. Because it was really interesting with it, because the bill had been around for so long. So obviously I knew what the bill was. When my agent at the time said, I'm, I'm going to put, who was the Joy Jameson, the Chris Ellison's agent? She said, Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to try and get you on the bill, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do the bill. Just because it, you know, it wasn't particularly something on my radar. I was like, Oh, I, I kind of wanted to do the next cold feet or <laughs> whatever. You know, I was like, Oh, the bill. And it was a bit like, Oh, right. And then, you know, it was 
amazing. I had an amazing time. I wish I'd, I mean, I chose to leave, as did you, and some sort of big car, I wish I'd stayed longer because it was brilliant. And you don't, I was only 26 when I left, and you have no idea, really. You just think the work will keep coming and da-da-da. And I have been really lucky with doing lots of different things, but when I decided I wanted to leave, I wanted to leave, I wanted to leave. And actually, and my, I was really lucky because I had brilliant storylines to take me out of it and everything. But then you look back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later and think, God, you know, why am I in such a hurry? Like, you could have just had another few lovely years. But you had that thing of, I'm young and I've got to get on and I, I've got to keep, if I want my career to go, so I've got to keep pushing and da 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 da. And, and then, you know, you leave and you don't work for six months and you think, oh, I could have done that last six months and <laughs> or whatever. But, oh, oh. you know, the kind of pressure we put on ourselves with our careers, I think, thinking, oh no, if I stay too long, I'll get too typecast or whatever. You never really know what the answer is, do you? So you No, but at the time it was right. We made the decisions around that time. So with foresight and and knowing that we had those experiences, I think that it makes it even more special because we just we realise how how important it was at that time in our lives to meet all those wonderful people. We were so lucky. Yeah, exactly. Those jobs. You're so lucky because because we both had those jobs quite young. Like, you know, I've had great Thing. like I did a Charlie Brooker series called Dead Set which was fantastic and stuff like that but to be in a long running series is really special one of the things I used to love was going on a Friday along to pick up the script you know hot off the press to find out what was going to happen to your character and the excitement of that was like gonna have to be next week you know you're living this life and it's it's one of those privileges where you think because if you're playing you know, a big Shakespearean role that lots of people have played before. You're so aware that you're going to be compared to everyone else that's played that character or whatever in the past. And and this is, I love that thing of going, it's your part. You create this part with the writers and the, and the storyliners. You're all developing this character and it's yours. And she has this life and this existence and it's magical. And you get to act every day and it's, yeah, it's brilliant. What was it? How many years altogether for you? Were you there in my About two and a half or three years. Yeah, it was maybe it was three years. It wasn't more than three. I've got a question here that someone's put to me. How similar is Beth to Kerry? Not very. I'd like to think I was a little bit cleverer. No. <laughs> I'm a bit more cleverer, I am. I'm a bit more cleverer. A bit more cannier. <laughs> uh, I mean, it did. It's like, I'm quite a paranoid person, as in, you know, does that person like me? Does that, like... You know, or if I was going out with someone, I'd be, you know, my antennae would be out all the time, as opposed to Kerry just wandering around thinking everything was fine and sort of like, oh, he loves me, everything's fine. There's lots of symb- lots of signs around that he might be. Maybe we need a bit more of Terry in our life. Maybe the other do you, apart from your exercise, is there a, and your writing and your beautiful girl, is there anything else that you find helps you cope with everyday pressures of what's, I mean, waking up for me and having to talk myself around each waking moment not to panic, not to, you know, not to spiral out of, can you hear that? It's the it's this guy. He's brilliant. He just walks around Brighton in wigs. We should have had him on the show. He's um, 
he's got music blaring every day and he walks around the streets. He's happy as. I don't know where he lives, but he's just like one happy person. What I'm saying, that's sort of a lead into what I'm trying to say. It's like to be happy yeah. and be grateful for what we have and our lives. Sometimes, you know, there's all these pressures outside. Is there anything that you use that helps you cope? So I'm not very good at doing things like, like I do love yoga. I'm quite good at yoga, but I don't do it enough. Just, I'm quite, I mean, I said quite good at it as in I've done it for loads of years, but I don't do it enough. But if I do ever do it about once a year, I think, I don't I do this every day. Like it's actually amazing. And, and the same with meditation. I can see why people think it's amazing. Mm, you see, I don't know about meditation stuff. I read something. It's really interesting because I know a lot of people that do it. Yeah. But they, there is something if, you having to do meditation every day becomes an effort that right. you have to do. Uh, it then. becomes another thing that you have to do. But actually that level of consciousness is something that we should integrate in, in a, every day. So why would we need to, right, I've got to go sit on my mat and I've got to do downward dogs and da 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 I think that's quite an, an interesting one. I think it's quite interesting. I think I've always said routine really helps, like particularly as an actor. We like to think of ourselves as not needing routine and stuff, but we do. I think we do. Because it's like I still get edgy if someone puts on kind of a morning television show, uh, like a morning newspaper. I get edgy because I get the fear of when I very early started out um, and, you know, trying to watch morning television and then feeling useless and I'm unemployed and, ah, and I don't go like that with unemployment anymore but having been through 20 years of in and out of employment and self-employment thing having a kid at school really helps weirdly because I think the early years are harder when you're being when you've got a baby and it's just you and you're having to manage the whole day and you've had no sleep when you're wandering around with this baby in a buggy and when and sort of have a sleep and I'm on my own and I need some more coffee and, and they want to go to a baby class and, and it all becomes a bit <laughs> and whereas because we've got the routine of getting her to school and picking her up later and stuff that marks your day and as soon as I'm with her I calm down because she's then you know it's always harder when it's just you in your head wandering around I think so that's one of the reasons why get, getting a writing routine or whatever it is in place is really good or whatever the routine is working in a shop for however many hours a day or whatever you're doing because well, we need that and I mean also the sea I, I think I, what we were talking about earlier with museums I don't think it's quite hard sometimes to give yourself things that are nice, to allow yourself stuff that is nice. So we've moved back to Brighton. I have to make myself go to the sea sometimes because I forget that it's there. And, you know, you feel more worthy staying at home, doing the washing, doing some work, doing some stuff, writing some emails, whatever you're doing. And you feel naughty going off and looking at the sea. But you have to remember you're a human being and you're allowed. But things like if you've got a dog, you have to take the dog for a walk. So you're sort of allowed. Yeah, and what I mean, those yeah things where if if it was part of your job to go to the sea, then you'd feel that was justified. But because it's a nice thing to do, sometimes we don't allow ourselves to do those things that bring us joy and calm. But I also um, do rely on friends. My friend Emily, I will, she'll get a phone call. So we, it's quite good with the um, text messages, the voice messages things now, because I can ring and go, I'm not like about it exactly about this, 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 blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then know that she can, I'm not bothering her with the phone call. You know, she can then come back to me and say, everything's fine. This is completely normal. 
they're all good things and we shouldn't feel bad about going for coffee or meeting people, going to the cinema and taking time out. And as you say, it's all researching as well, our world and being tuned in to what's um, out there. I think we, we, we don't allow ourselves enough of that. I think we're so programmed into we, we should be doing this or we should be doing that. And it's okay to rest. It's okay to watch your Netflix series. It's okay to just be. But it's difficult, isn't it? If you're from a culture of everyone in my family works really, really hard at really like proper jobs, brilliant, brilliant things. Like my brother is a consultant and nutritionist in intensive care. So for years I was struggling. Even when I was on the bill, even when I was working, I was thinking, you're saving people's lives. And I am farting around and you know and he made this really good point about he was like what do you think my patients do all day when they're in hospital they watch television they watch EastEnders they watch the bill they watch these programs that you know keep them going and he, you know it was really long to say that and that, he was like don't deny the importance of the arts you know and actually my amazing I've got an amazing therapist called Abby who I speak to every now and again and I remember him saying to me when I was saying oh I when I wasn't working acting, I, I felt like I shouldn't be writing because I felt like I should be doing something more vocational, which of course you can still do as well. But he he was saying, why have you got a block on allowing yourself to write? And I said, because it feels like acting is kind of a selfish, all about me thing. Then writing is also kind of that. And he had a real, what are you saying about the arts, Beth? Are you, you know, are you saying that, you know, the importance of musicians who sit there writing this amazing music that gets us through the day or whatever. I think, you know, I'm not very good at sometimes allowing. Yeah, allowing. You've just done an episode of Doctors and Conversations because that was a really, I think it was called A Difficult Conversation, which was, I was captivated by you. I think it's only a half hour episode and your story ran along I can't remember the actor's name who you did most of the scenes with in the surgery Middling. he's brilliant he's fantastic so, I said to him you're so like a GP like and he went oh, thanks and I was like no, you really are <laughs> and everyone who's seen it and said to me how good she is as well he's he was I was really lucky to work with him on those scenes yeah it was really nice because because it's always nice when this happens they contacted me and said do you want to, you know, through my agent said, does Beth want to do it? So I didn't have to audition for anything. Was really, oh, yeah. how lovely is that? I know. It was bliss. And I read it and I thought, this is brilliant. Like a really important subject. Um, yeah, domestic you violence. betrayed her beautifully. Heidi, I think her character was. Yeah, yeah okay. because I did quite a lot of research into it. And, you know, this whole why, the whole thing of why do women who are, in domestic violence situations stay with their partner so long and what you know why is it kept a secret and all that kind of thing and I watched some amazing documentaries about and it's just shocking the stuff that's going on all around us all the time and mm. the shame and the guilt and the fear it's bigger goes. than yeah yeah well, I mean you know well you might have helped a few people out there honey so well done for that and whatever comes next for Beth accordingly I wish you all the best because I think you're an amazing person. And thank you for joining Ollie Crooker's Build podcast. And I think the fans will love it. 
They'll love to see you just hanging out, having a chat, nap chat. And I'll see you at the beach. I love you. Love you too, darling. I can't tell you how much I loved recording these podcasts with Beth and I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as we did going for a trip down memory lane. Next month, a new trilogy begins as I interrogate my old Sunhill CID sparring partner, the brilliant Raji James, who played DS Vic Singh. Supporters of the Build Podcast Patreon channel can enjoy that trilogy now, plus the following trilogy with lovely Jane Wall, aka Di Worrell, for just $9.99, which will also give you access to 10 cast crew commentaries, 12 off the beat podcasts, and over 100 reaction videos, including a new series featuring myself and Andrew McIntosh reacting to some of our old episodes together, which was great fun. So treat yourself to hours and hours of exclusive Bill Podcast content at patreon.com forward slash the Bill Podcast. I'll be back next week for a bonus podcast with crime novelist and our new co-sponsor, Tony Drury. But now I'll hand you over to DS Greg himself to read our closing credits. Bye for now. Hello, this is Andrew McIntosh and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk The Bill Podcast is presented by the fabulous Natalie Rolls. Produced by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Ben Adams, Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Sarah Kuiper, Calvin Millward, Maz Mirabilis, Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Isabel Allen, Ben Ashmore, Simon Banstead, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Tony Drury, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Alan Hunting, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Claire Norbury, Laura Penny Fay, Michael Seeley, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. The theme music is composed by Matthew Annis. Natalie and I have been back in the studio recording Series 2 of Letter from Helvetica, released on all podcasting platforms later this year. If you'd like to hear your name on the closing credits of the next eight episodes of our Top 40 Fiction podcast, you can support us on coffee.com forward slash letter from Helvetica. (laughs) 